Amen. Hey, good morning. Are you guys ready to get into the Word? Ready to dive in? All right, Mark uh, chapter 5. Um, we are back in our Tethered series uh, this morning. Uh, took a couple uh, weeks of hiatus for a few different things going on, Easter last week and a few other things before that. Um, but we are diving back in. Remember when uh, we are in Mark and we're in this Tethered series, we're talking about what it looks like to be a disciple who is growing, um, to be connected and tethered to the person um, that is actually going to give you the life that you need. Uh, he's going to give you the focus that you need. He's going to give you the attention that you need to do what he's called you to do. And so in Mark, we are just getting back to what it looks like, the basics of being a disciple. And so we're jumping back in here in chapter 5. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll start in verse uh, 21. Um, but before we do, I'm going to pray. Father, thanks for time together. Uh, thanks for uh, men and women who are here uh, to hear uh, from you. We've connected in uh, prayer. We've connected in, uh, through musical worship. We've connected in worshiping and community, God. Uh, and now we're just opening up your word to hear from you. Um, you have a word that is for us from uh, your word. Uh, your re word never returns void. And so we're just trusting you uh, with that. And so wherever we're at in our journey with you, um, when you speak directly and clearly to us so that we might know the next step, the next best step to take uh, in our relationship with you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was in seminary uh, years ago, uh, Ashley and I, we were attending uh, a church in Dallas, uh, and, we and we loved the place. And I, I got to shadow the pastor around uh, for a while, uh, Pastor Neil, a great man of God, loves people, connected well with people. Um, but as a lot of churches do, um, they were in the process of uh, new mission statement, new values, and all that sort of a thing. And so they were kicking around different ideas. And so a lot of good ideas were floated around, some good, some not good, but that just happens in the brainstorming sessions, right? And, and so uh, he said, Here, here's what we're going to do. Here, let me throw this out there and see if that sticks. And, and he said, here's what our mission is going to be. He said, our mission is to invite people into the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. And everybody was like, um, what? what? What does that even mean? Uh, I think we have a slide that we can throw up there, I believe. There you go. So like... They're like, this is not catchy, this is not punchy, this is not short, you can't put that on a t-shirt, and oh, by the way, nobody wants to feel desperate, nobody wants to feel like they're dependent on somebody else, and, and, and he said, yeah, you're, you're right, but isn't it in our most desperate moments, when we lean into Jesus, that we're able to experience this unexpected joy, um, this joy that comes in, in, in a way that we just, we just didn't expect it. It kind of catches us off guard. And, and, and people are like, well, yeah, maybe. And, and then they kick that around for a while. And it, long story short, that is what stuck. And I, that phrase, inviting people into the unexpected, uh, inviting people into uh, the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus has shown up in my life over and over and over again in, in certain scenarios. Um, it's had staying power for me. And, and the reality is somehow, and this is why, somehow in God's grand design, it's not usually the mountaintop moments that we experience joy. Now, do we experience joy on the mountaintops? Absolutely, because that's where we want to be. But it's down in those valleys where we begin to experience this joy that we never thought could show up there. Like, I, I, I'm in this place, and for some reason, like, I'm not freaking out right now. For, for, for whatever reason, like, I, I thought, like, if you would have told me 10 years ago that this would be going on in my life, I would have been like, there's no way, just take me out of this place now because I can't walk through that. But when you find yourself in, you're like, you know what? 
Like, this is hard, this is difficult, but when I lean into Jesus, I'm experiencing a joy that I never would have expected. Um, last year, uh, Ashley had some uh, medical things that she was working through um, that we didn't see coming. Uh, it was totally out of the blue. She ended up being in the hospital for uh, a little while. Um, and we sat in the hospital, and we found ourselves saying over and over and over again, God, we don't know what you're doing. We really don't. We don't, we don't know what you're doing, but we trust you. We don't know what you're doing, but we trust you. And my pastor's words kept coming back to me. There really is this unexpected joy and desperate dependence on Jesus. And as we sat there in the hospital, as many of you have done, as many of you have walked through difficult moments in your life, you realize when we cling to Jesus, for every, like when we cling to him, there's so much joy to be found there. And so in a scenario that didn't make any sense, we were actually able to find like a heart of joy. And we totally weren't expecting it. Now, I'll be honest, Desperate dependence, that's not easy, right? Being, nobody wants to be desperate. We try everything in our lives to stay away from being desperate. Nobody wants to be dependent and lean on anybody else. We're, we're a nation of people who wants to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and there's a certain pride that comes along with that. So it's not easy to be desperately dependent on anyone or anything else. It's, it's not always a comfortable, comfortable place to be. It's usually in those moments where we come to the end of ourselves. And we say, you know what? I've got nothing left. I've tried everything, and I can't fix this. I can't make this work. I can't save this. I can't put it back together. It's in those moments where we just figure out, okay, if I can't fix it, then maybe I'll just lean into Jesus. Maybe I'll lean into him, and I'll learn how to trust him uh, in, in the middle of the space. And so as we dive into Mark chapter 5 this morning, what I want to do is what our pastor did so often while we were there, is I want to invite you into discovering the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. Um, in chapter 5 here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, two uh, distinct individuals who are like many of us in the room. Um, they're at the end of the rope. They don't know what they're going to do. They've exhausted every conceivable effort that they can think about. But then somewhere in the middle of the space of like, I am broken and I don't know what to do, they see Jesus. And then Jesus shows up in this unexpected place and shows unexpected joy and changes their lives. And so um, we're looking at Mark chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21. Uh, if you're with me, somebody say amen. Okay. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. So we've been in this study in the book of Mark, and we know that Jesus, he starts off in Capernaum um, from where we've been focusing. He goes to the other side of the lake, does a few miraculous things there, and now he's on his way back, and he's on the other side of the lake, presumably back in the area of Capernaum, the way that Mark writes this. And then in verse 22, something happens here. A leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter's dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. Okay, so in these verses, we found our first fellow. We found our first person. It's a guy by the name of, of Jairus. And we learned a couple things about him in these few short verses. Jairus is a synagogue leader which means that he's a bit like the local pastor there in Capernaum. He's a guy who wears all kinds of different hats. 
He teaches on a regular basis at the synagogue. Um, He leads a weekly school that gathers at the synagogue. He takes care of the building, kind of like a caretaker. Um, He's a, uh, for lack of better terms, he's a service provider for the community there that meets in uh, Capernaum. And while he's doing all of that with all these different hats, he's got to try to figure out somehow how to come up with a uh, a word from God uh, each week when people gather together. And as Mark writes this, He's expecting that everybody who's going to read this letter, they're they're going to know the significance of the synagogue leader in a community and how prevalent uh, or how prominent they they are in the community. And so here's what we learn about Jairus. He's got something big going on. Uh, It's a big deal with him. He is a desperate man. He's a desperate man. He's got a 12-year-old little girl who is dying. Now, let's be honest. If you've got kids, this is a scenario that would absolutely give you nightmares. Like, I never want to walk through this. Kids, uh, parents aren't supposed to bury their children. It's supposed to be the other way around. And so you can almost feel the tension and the desperation that he's got to have in this moment. Now, I've not walked through this. Some of you may have. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, though. And so when I read this, I can relate with what's going on, just the tension of like, if I were to walk through this, I'd be losing my mind. I would feel so desperate and so out of, out of control. And I feel like this is where we find Jairus to a certain extent. He's got this 12-year-old daughter who is sick and she's dying. And here's the reality. The significance of these words is like she's not just sick and, and, and she's going to miss school for a couple of days and come in with a doctor's note. Okay, she doesn't have a runny nose. This is heavier than that. She's actually, she's on the verge of, of dying here. And he's prominent enough in the community where if this, if there's something available to help her get better, he has access to it. So if it's finances, he can figure out the finances. If it's getting the right doctor, he can find all the right doctor. If it's about prayer, he's a man of prayer. He's given his life to this. So, so he's been a man who's been praying. He is, um, by best estimation, he's exhausted every possible effort to make his daughter well. This is a desperate dad, and he's trying to figure out how to save his daughter's life. And he's come to the conclusion that no matter what I do, No matter how much money I throw at this, no matter how many doctors I get into the room, I can't fix this. Can't make it better. Now, as a dad, that's difficult to think about. As a man, we are fix-it kind of people. That's difficult to think about. As a human being, just, just dealing with, like when we can't fix things, that's not a comfortable place for us to be in. And Jairus, he's come to the conclusion, I can't fix this and I can't make this right. And that's a very humbling place to be in. So what I want to do is I want to come back to this idea of finding the unexpected joy of desperate dependence in Jesus. The reality is that God brings each one of us through valleys and mountaintops throughout the course of our lives with one goal in mind, to establish our faith in him. If you're riding high on the peak of a mountain, praise God. He wants to build your faith. If you're in the middle of a valley and you're like, when am I ever going to get out of this? It's hard to praise God in that space, but in that space, he still, he wants to build your faith in him. There are moments where we look back and we think, man, I didn't, I didn't expect this. I didn't know what God was doing in that moment. But as I'm sitting here right now, looking back 2020, right, um, I can now see that God was preparing me for the moment that I'm in right now. So as we're sitting here, You know, 2,000 years later after this is written, what I want us to do is I want us to think whatever you're going through right now, whether it's a high point for you or whether it's a low point for you, I want you to know that God is at work and he's trying to establish your faith. 
And he's trying to build upon a faith that you already have no matter what's going on in your life. And so I want you to write something down if you write things down or type something into your phones if you, if you type things into your phone. It may be hard, but God is trying to build my faith. The thing that you're walking through, that you'd rather not be going through, it may be hard, but the reality is that God is trying to build your faith. Now, I, I know what it's like when you ask somebody to do something, you're sitting in church like, man, I just, like, the fish are probably biting, and I just want you to kind of close it down. I don't want to really give any mental thought to this, but listen to me. I want you to think about this. What do you think about what, What's that thing that's, that's tearing you apart right now? The area that you feel is more broken and dead and like a grave than anything else in your, in your life. So maybe it's a, a marriage or a situation at work, and you're not getting, you don't have the authority that you wish that you had, and um, uh, people aren't um, bringing their, their work to you, and um, things are just kind of falling apart, uh, and uh, the, maybe the kids are crazy, and it's just, what it, what's, what's the one thing? I want you to think about that, and the thing that you're working through right now, I want you to try to realize that in that peace, in that thing that feels broken and dead, I want you to know that God is at work trying to build your, build your faith in him. He's trying to establish a faith if you don't have one yet. And if you have it, he's trying to build uh, uh, upon that. Watch how he builds Jairus' faith here. Jesus, he's, he's most likely um, come back from, uh, to Capernaum here, and, and Jairus would have already heard about Jesus. In fact, he may have even seen Jesus do miracles already. If, if you remember back to chapter 3, and I know we all remember back to chapter 3, right? I'm not delusional about it. We're all remembering these things. Um, we, we remember back to chapter 3, and we remember Jesus going into, uh, into uh, the synagogue, and he does a miraculous thing. There was a man there. He's got a withered hand. The thing is, like, it's been deformed. We don't know how long. I can't remember if it was all of his life or not, but he's got an issue going on, and it's on the Sabbath, and the uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders are there in a synagogue, and they're trying to test Jesus. They want to know, is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is he going to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus sees the hardness of hearts of everybody who's sitting in the room right there. And he goes over to the man and he asks the question, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And you know, he puts everybody on blast in that moment. And what's he do? He heals the man's hand. Like he brings life back to what looked like it was dead. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they just go absolutely nuts and they go bonkers. And it was in that moment where they said, we've got to get rid of this guy. And they start thinking about ways to, to actually kill Jesus after this. And this Jairus, who we know as the synagogue leader, he would have most likely been in the synagogue that day to see that healing, right? He would have actually, if, if there's a synagogue leader in Capernaum, he is most likely the guy who is leading the synagogue the day that this goes down. And when you see something like that, you, when you see a deformed hand go straight again, you don't forget that. You don't forget seeing that kind of power. When you see Jesus breathe life back into something that looked like it was dead, there's something inside of you that changes you. And it's in this moment, back in chapter 3 of Mark, where God was already at work beginning to establish Jairus' faith, not just in a law system, establishing a faith that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. He's at work in, in, in this aspect, and he's building his faith. He's letting him see that Jesus, not only is he there doing miraculous things, but this is going to be the one that God had sent. And so his faith is being established. But we know that he's a desperate man. His daughter's on life support. He can't fix it, and he remembers in this moment what Jesus is capable of in verse 23. And so as he remembers, he runs to Jesus he finds Jesus, he falls at his feet, and he pleads fervently with Jesus. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can 
live. Do you know what he's saying in this moment? He's saying, this is out of my hands. I can't fix this. I don't have the ability. But this is something that is fit just for your hands. You, you, you can handle this. So I want to get real for a moment. In this moment, Jairus, he's turning to Jesus, right? He's desperate. He's got nothing that he can offer on the table, and he runs to Jesus. And I just want to throw out the question for us. Like, where do we turn? Like, when we're in, like, we're in desperate positions like this and things are just falling apart, where, where do we run like this? There are a lot of places that we can turn when we feel desperate. There are some of the, the common scenarios that we're aware of. When I feel hopeless, I drink so that I can't feel the hopelessness anymore, so I can't feel the pain, and when I still feel it, I drink more. I feel overwhelmed and stressed out, and so when that's going on, I don't want to feel overwhelmed and stressed out, and so um, I, I go find a place that I'm familiar with and the people are familiar with me, and I get high, and I, and I, and I mellow out for a little bit so I don't have to, to, to worry about what's going on. I feel out of control, and so I, I try to control everyone and everything around me. I don't want to feel out of control. Don't, don't want to feel that way. And so when I feel out of control, the only way that I can feel back in control is to control the people around me. I feel hurt, so I don't want to be the only one who's hurting, so I hurt back. I'm lonely, and, and so I act like I, I want to be alone instead of acknowledging the fact that I'm lonely and isolated and I want people around me. There are a lot of places that we can turn when we feel desperate. A lot of places that we can go. The question is, where do we normally turn? Where do you normally turn in scenarios that feel like they're broken and they're falling apart and that are dead? And I want you to hold on to that for a minute because I know that Jesus isn't always the first place that we turn, right? For some of us, he is. Some of us, like, when I'm going through, like, that's where I go, I run. He is my refuge. Um, where can I go? I look to the hills. From where can I, like, that's where I'm looking. My eyes are always set on him. But I know that that's not all of us. For many of us, we exhaust every of the options that we have. And then when there's nothing left, we get to a point, and we're just like, you know what? Now that everything's done, now I'll try to pray. Or now I'll try Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll go down that route. And I want you to know, if that's you, I want you to know that whether Jesus was the first door that you knocked on or if he was the last door that you knocked on, he wants you to experience the joy that comes through desperate dependence on him. And he'll use whatever it is that you're going through to allow you to experience that joy and to build your faith. He will use whatever you are going through to help establish and build your faith so that you might have unending, unexpected, un like just remarkable joy. The problem is, or the thing is, you have to let him. You have to come to him with those things. And Jairus has come to Jesus with what's broken and what needs healed. He's got this 12-year-old daughter, a desperate man, who's likely tried everything, and now he's leaning into Jesus. And now we have the second person who comes into the story. While this is going down, there is a woman who jumps in. Jesus has said, okay, I'll come with you. And so he's on his way to go heal, this girl, heal Jairus' daughter. And as they're on their way, there's this woman who has her own thing too. And she jumps in and says, hey, I need some help. Look at her story in verse 24. Jesus went with them. And all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. 
She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. So you've got this large crowd who's following Jesus around. He's on his way to go heal this person's daughter. And, and this is going to in this large crowd, there's this woman who shows up. And here's what we learn about her. She has been bleeding for 12 years. And the way that this, these words are constructed, this is an ongoing thing. It hasn't, it hasn't stopped. For 12 years, we don't know exactly what the bleeding is from. Could have been a uterine disorder. Could have been some type of hemorrhaging. Could have been a cancer that they weren't aware of at the day. We just don't know. Um, we know that she is desperately pleading or going to be pleading for God here. We know that her life has been impacted for the last 12 years, and it has wrecked her life. So think about this. This is a time frame-wise. The whole time that Jairus' daughter has been alive is the same time frame that she's been dealing with this illness in her body for 12 years. And here's what we learn about her in verse 26. She suffered a great deal at the hands of many doctors. Now think about that. She's been to an appointment after an appointment, after an appointment after appointment. She's been a human pincushion trying to figure out what's going on. And we're not talking about 21st century medicine here where it's precision care. We're talking about first century medicine here where a lot of this is trial and error. And sometimes it works, but most time it doesn't. And a lot of times when it doesn't work, when it's trial and error, it makes a situation worse than it was before it ever started. So this is a woman that has suffered at the hands of many doctors, not just one, but over and over and over this has happened. And then she's spent everything that she has to pay for the doctors. She goes to work, she gets a paycheck, she pays for the doctors. She goes to work, she comes home, she gets a paycheck, she, she goes to the doctors. And even when she doesn't have money to pay the doctor's bills, even when nothing's fixed, she still has to figure out a way to keep going to the doctor to try to make this better. There's hope in the doctor, but it's not happening for her. And so the last thing that we learn about here is not only has she suffered at the hand of doctors and she's paid them a lot of money, she's not getting any better. She's still bleeding. So let's talk real quick about the implications of what this does for her life. She's physically suffered. She's financially suffered. And then on top of that, there's this social community life issue that's going on too that has completely wrecked her ability to be around anybody and to enjoy community with anybody in her circle. They're back in Galilee, right? So this is most likely a Jewish woman here, meaning that she's under the Levitical law. And she's following the law. And the Levitical law of chapter 15 says that if there is a flow of blood, whether it be a monthly thing or it be something that is just happening, that you are to be considered unclean for a certain amount of time until that you can be considered unclean where that's not happening uh, any longer. Now, until you're considered clean, everything that you touch becomes unclean. And everything that is touched by you that somebody else touches, then they become unclean as well. And uh, it's just this ongoing cycle that happens like that. Now, think about this. Now, we touch a lot of things from day to day in our lives, don't we? I mean, you wake up in the morning, you touch the alarm clock. You get out of bed, you touch the door handle, you touch the, the faucets, you, you, you touch the car doors, you touch the doors at work. We touch a lot of things in our life. Everything that this girl would have touched would have been considered un unclean. And so her community life is kind of on hold until all of this is over. So there's no hugs, 
She doesn't get to have any physical contact with anybody. There's no coffee dates where she can just sit down and, and, and hang out with, with friends um, to, to fight isolation. There's no going to church and worshiping with a faith community that you can grow and learn about God together. Um, there's no sitting down on somebody's couch at their house because as soon as you get up, they have to burn the couch and throw it away. Like how ostracizing is a life like this that she's living? This is a, a big deal. She is all alone. For this woman, everything that she's touched, every day of her life has become unclean because the blood never stops. There are never any clean moments for her. Not, not one. Not one. Can you imagine the shame of that life? The discomfort of that life, the embarrassment of that life. And on top of all that, wanting to know, man, why after 12 years hasn't God healed me yet? Why after everything that I've gone through, why on earth is the pain still here and why won't it go away? You guys, in a 21st century level conversation here, one of the greatest contributors to people walking away from the faith is stuff like this. When I'm in pain and God lets it go. When I feel like I don't deserve what I'm going through and yet God allows me to go through it. When somebody I love is going through something that I would not rather them go through, uh, they should not be going through it. Whether it be physical, relational, financial, whatever that is, when it continues for a while without any type of relent, what happens is that God gets blamed. And when he gets blamed, people are very comfortable or in becoming increasingly so more comfortable with walking away from the faith. God, why won't you heal? God, why aren't you stepping in on this? What could I possibly be learning from something like this? And instead of believing that God could use this to help establish faith or to help build somebody's faith, to cause a dependency on him that they can't have in anything else, they walk away, they're bitter, angry, mad, hurt, sometimes just, just, just uh, depressed um, and just uncertain that there could be a God that would not love them enough to heal them. And so this is going on for, for 12 years. If there's anybody who has the right to be mad and upset and disappointed, it would be this woman that we're talking about right now. But finally, in verse 27, something changes in her life. She had heard about Jesus. And I, and I love this. She's in the middle of her pain. In verse 27, she had heard about Jesus. You know what that means? She had heard that there might be another option. There might be hope that's on the horizon. And so she came up behind him through the crowd and she touches his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. I'll be healed. I'm going to pause here. Because if, if this isn't desperate dependence on Jesus, I don't know what is. She had every right in her mind, to be angry. But instead of being angry, she turns to Jesus and she actually physically reaches out to him. She had nothing left. No resources, no more human effort could fix things. She was in the same boat as, as this fellow Jairus who shows up right before her. It's the um, proverbial, um, she's up a creek without a paddle. There, there's no way for her to navigate this thing on her own. But here's what she does. In this moment, there's one act of just bold faith. And, and she's like, well, I've tried everything else. Nothing is working here. So how about I just reach out to Jesus? How about I lean into him and see if that might change something? And so she reaches out and she touches him or she touches, she touches the hem of his robe. Verse 28, she reaches out to touch Jesus' robe, thinking that if she could just touch his robe, she could be possibly healed. To feel her desperation. 
She's doing something that's pretty risky in this moment. She's setting aside her anger, and she's moving towards Jesus. She's setting aside feeling unclean and actually being unclean, and she's reaching out to Jesus. And I want you to check this out, guys. This is so important. Jesus doesn't look at the woman who is in this crowd and, and be like, you know what? Oh, now you're coming to me? Now you're making it over here to me after all these years, after you've tried everything else, now is the moment where you're going to come to me when you've realized nothing else is going to work. I'm your last resort. This is, what you're gonna, this is how you're going to treat me. Because there's a thousand reasons why she shouldn't have gone to Jesus in that moment. There's a thousand reasons she could have come up with. And every one of us in this room with the thing that we're dealing with, the thing that we're hurt by, the thing that we're broken, there's a thousand reasons why we, we could, we could uh, choose not to reach out to Jesus. I'm too messed up. I've gone too far. My faith isn't strong enough. I've really, I've really made a mess out of my life. I'm just here so that my kids don't get messed up like me. I've tried everything else first, and he's going to be mad at me. I'm embarrassed. It won't work. I'm mad. There's so many options, but Jesus didn't care that she tried a thousand other things first. He was glad that she was in front of him right now. When she finally reaches out and she touches Jesus' robe, what we see from Jesus is not a, a cold, stiff Jesus who pushes her away. This is a Jesus who says, come on, I'm, 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 I'm here for you. When she finally reaches out, he breathes life back into what she feels like was dead. Look at verse 29. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now I have no idea how she knew that she was healed. I don't know if there was something that she felt inside of her body in the moment, but whatever it was, she knew that something had happened. And what scripture tells us is that it stopped right then and there. And here's what that means. It means that what had troubled her for the past 12 years, it was over. The isolation that she had experienced was about to be over. It was, it was done with. And this is funny. I, I love the disciples in this moment because Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Like there's a billion people around you right now. And you're going to ask, everybody's touching you. What do you mean who touched me? And Jesus is like, no, no. There's someone in this crowd who touched me and it was a touch of faith. Somebody reached out to me and they believed that I could change something in their life. They reached out and they believed that I can make a difference. There was, this is different than everybody clamoring for me just wanting something. This was somebody who reached out to me and had legitimate faith in me. Look at verse 30. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see what, uh, who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and, and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. I read this a couple weeks ago. And I thought, man, this is one of the most humbling and beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. Because Jesus is, is looking for this woman. He's searching her out. And of course he knows where she's at. Um, nobody can hide from Jesus. This is kind of a nod back to what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. When they hide in the middle of their brokenness. And, 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 and God is like, hey, where are you? He wants them to acknowledge what's going on. He wants her to acknowledge what's going on. This woman's hiding. She's trembling. She's terrified. Why is she doing that? I think there are a couple different options. I think one, she's like when you look at scripture, when somebody has uh, an encounter with the, just the unshakable nature and character of an awesome, amazing God, and they see this unleashed power of God, it's not uncommon for, for people to bow down at his feet and to fall down in fear. 
Like we see that all throughout the scriptures, but I also think that there's something else going on here on a more personal note. She just potentially made Jesus unclean, and she knows that she potentially made Jesus unclean. She is unclean, and she reaches out, and she touches something that belongs to him, which means, in essence, that is supposed to be unclean as well. And I think she's afraid because she doesn't want Jesus to undo what just happened. Her whole world just changed in an instant. The pain gone, the bleeding gone, the uncleanness gone, the humiliation of that gone, the social stigma gone, exclusion from worship, that's gone. That's no, that's no longer going to be an aspect that's part of her life. And in those places where all this shame and guilt and everything else that she's been carrying around for all these years, now what's replaced that is this unspeakable, unexpected joy that's there. And she doesn't want to lose that. And she's never seen Jesus undo a miracle. Up to this point in Scripture, we've never seen Jesus undo a miracle. And she doesn't want to be the first one. She doesn't want Jesus to undo what he just did in, in, her, in her life. And so she needs to know that when Jesus makes something clean, he makes it stay clean. He, it, it's not like you get clean and you become unclean. What Jesus cleans, it's always and forever clean. And she needs to know that he makes it clean forever. And so what Jesus says in verse 34 is so strong. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. I want you to know the faith here isn't a, necessarily a work that has made her clean. It's the faith in who is able to make her clean. She has trusted Jesus in this moment. So he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. He looks for her and he calls her out because he wants her to hear these words. And I believe that he's looking for her because she needs to know that she's been made clean. And the words that he says to her, if you are seeking Jesus, if you are desperately depending on him, I want you to know that I think that he wants you to hear those words too. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Son, your faith has made you well. Child, your faith has made you well. And so go in peace. Your suffering is over. Guys, we're, we're living in a culture today that's looking for hope and healing and joy in all the wrong places. Um, we're looking for our identity and things that were never intended to be our identity or intended to give us our identity. And when we find identity in something else and that breaks down, when it falls apart, we feel wrecked and we feel broken. And we just think, man, if I, if I can find the right person, I'll be okay. If I can transition into the right person, maybe I'll be okay. If I listen to enough TED Talks, if I get around the right social circle, if I have the right people in my life, if I get enough knowledge, if I can get enough money, if I can get all this stuff, maybe I'll be, I'll be right. Maybe I can find the joy that my heart longs for. But I want to tell you this. We will never, there will never be enough of what this world produces to give us what only Jesus can. Let me say that again. There will never be enough of what this world produces that can give us what only Jesus himself can. The hope and joy that we need, it can't be found in stuff. It can't be found in what's around us. It can't be found outside of Jesus. It can only be found in him. This woman's life was changed, and it's never going to look the same again, not because she found the right doctor, not because she found the money to get the right things in her life. Her life was going to be forever changed because of Jesus. Our lives are forever changed not because we have the right job, we have the right husband, we have the right wife, we have the best kids, or because everything is working well in our life. Our lives will be forever changed because of who Jesus is and because of what he does in our lives. So we've got 
a bit of Jairus' story. We have all of this woman's story here. But let's jump back into Jairus real quick as we, get, as we wrap up. Verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter, nobody wants to hear these words, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Can't imagine what was going through his mind in this moment when he hears this. Because for a moment, he's filled with hope. Jesus is on the way. He's going to go heal my daughter. I've seen what he's capable of. It's going to happen. Then all of a sudden, he gets interrupted by this woman who's got her own issues. <laughs> we don't like to be stopped for Jesus to stop with other people's issues. We want him to deal only with ours right now. So it's the equivalent of the doctors coming out and saying, we tried everything that we could, and she's not going to make it. And as a dad, man, that's just a crushing thought to even, even think about. But Jesus overhears, overhears this in verse 36. I, I, it's easy for me to think that maybe Jairus was disappointed and mad, but I don't think that he is, right? Because you could be mad when you get disrupted. And, and, and like his daughter's about, I don't think that he is because he's already seen what Jesus was capable of doing in the synagogue. He just watched this woman get healed instantly. And so I think there's more hope than here right now than he ever had before he started off. I, I think he's encouraged about what he just saw. And, and I was reading in my office a little bit earlier this morning, and, and I, had this, I had this thought on verse 36. Let me read it to you and, and, and then share it with you. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. And here's the image that I, that I thought about when I was sitting in my office, that Jairus, he's not terrified that, that his daughter is dead. I, I don't think he is because I believe that he's trusting in the character and the nature of who Jesus is. I believe his heart is already there. He's desperately dependent on him. And the picture that I got is Jesus knows where Jairus' heart is. And I feel like it's almost like Jesus reaches over and puts a hand on his shoulder and kind of looks at him with like a twinkle in, in his eye and is like, hey, I, I've got this. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. You're about to see something with your eyes that you can only dream of. Verse 37. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anybody go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Why Peter, James, and John? Why, why is he letting a few people go with him? Remember, the, the meta-narrative of this, of this book uh, in, in Mark, the big story, is that there are disciples who are learning how to be disciples of Jesus. These are men who are learning how to trust Jesus in every circumstance. And so these three are going to kind of be an inner circle who are going to take the message of Jesus once Jesus is gone. They need this moment to learn. Not only does he have the ability to heal a hand, but he has the ability to raise up life. And so they're about to watch this with their own eyes, and they're never going to be the same because of it. Uh, so you got Peter, James, and John here, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw, uh, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And then the crowd laughed at him. Uh, interesting. But he made them all leave. They kind of got a time out here. And he took the girl's father and mother, and he took these three disciples with him into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them, give her something to eat. Said, Feed her! You know why he said give her something to eat? Because she's actually alive. It, it, it's, it's not like a, um, an emanation that they're seeing. Like she's actually physically alive. And so when you're alive, you eat. And so he says, give her some food so you can see that she's actually alive. Now, a long story short, made short here is that 
this guy and this girl, they were going through a lot. They had highs and they had lows, and God was at work establishing their faith. And for us, it's the same deal. Whether we have highs or we have lows, God is at work trying to establish our faith and to build upon our faith. And so if you haven't already written this down, I want you to lock this into your mind. It may be hard. The thing that you're walking through right now, it may be hard and nobody, nobody can discredit the pain that you feel in the middle of that. It might be hard, but God is trying to build your faith. He built Jairus' faith. He built the woman's, the woman's faith. He built the disciples' faith in this moment. And I'm guessing anybody else in that room, their faith was being established as well. So what do we take away from this? First of all, I think we, under, we need to understand that we're going to face troubling things. And it doesn't mean that God hates us. It doesn't mean that he's mad at us. It, doesn't mean, it just means that we go through a broken world. We're living in a broken world, and there's going to be troubling things that come along. Jesus himself said, don't be surprised by this kind of stuff. In this world, you're going to face troubles, but take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And then when things go sideways, we need to know that there's a tendency for us to kind of uh, uh, try everything that we can touch rather than to lean into Jesus. It's just natural. We, I mean, because of the fallen state, we're like, we lean into what we can actually physically touch and tangibly see. And so the tendency is for us to try those things rather than just to reach out and to lean into Jesus. And so the reality is sometimes it helps. There are a few things that work, and then sometimes uh, it just doesn't work. And so here's the, what we need to walk away with. Real joy unexpected joy will only come in desperate dependence on Jesus. Because sometimes when we pray, we don't get the answer that we wanted. Sometimes the little girl isn't raised. Sometimes the bleeding doesn't stop. And it doesn't mean that God isn't listening. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. We need to know that we can have unexpected joy. We can still have joy and desperate dependence on Jesus, even if it doesn't change, because things won't always turn out the way that we want, and they won't always turn out the way that we hoped. Faith in Jesus is what is going to sustain us. Faith that he can do what he says that he can do. Unexpected joy. I want to invite you into the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. We're going to sing a song or two in just a minute. And I want you to be thinking about the thing, the thing that just feels broken and dead in your life. You feel like there's no hope for. I want you to know that Jesus can breathe life back into that thing. And if he doesn't choose to do that, I want you to know that he's, he's establishing and sustaining your faith in the middle of that. And he has something maybe even better for you on the other side of that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your joy. Thank you for it, uh, even in the difficult times and the hard times that you show up in that place. And so for my brothers and sisters in the room who have struggled to see you there, I pray that they would understand that uh, you're at work, you're doing things. And so that they wouldn't run, they wouldn't hide, they wouldn't uh, fight against you in this, that they wouldn't get angry, bitter, mad, and, and, and displeased with you. But that they would understand, that we would understand, that you're at work establishing a faith that's got huge dividends both now and into eternity. And Father, I pray for uh, my friends in the room that haven't yet trusted Jesus. I pray that today would be a day that they reach out to you and just say, okay, bring me back to life. Breathe life into my dead space. I'm going to trust Jesus for life now and for eternity. And so for those who haven't trusted him, God, I trusted your son, I pray that today they just stake a, um, their faith on him and know that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through you. And then from this moment on, just walk forward in this unexpected joy of leaning into you in desperate dependence. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.